Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Psalm 138, Psalm 138, and uh, reading again verses 1 to 3. Psalm 138 and reading verses 1 to 3 of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. My uncle Donnie was a massive Rangers fan. He was a season ticket holder at Ibrox and he wanted the whole family to be the same And for about seven years, he would send David, my brother, and myself a weekly copy of the Rangers News magazine, as well as the odd match day programme from particular matches that he was especially proud of. And mum thought that it was only right that we should write to Uncle Donnie and Aunt Winnie each week to thank them for their kindness in sending us those Rangers magazines. I was a Rangers fan, David was a Celtic fan. Now, David found it hard writing those thank you letters, and there were certainly some nights sitting at the kitchen table with pen in my hand that I was a very reluctant letter writer, a very grudging letter writer. But since having nephews and a niece of my own, I've come to understand the, the pleasure of being thanked for something that you've done or being thanked for something that you've given This evening we find ourselves in a Thanksgiving psalm and we're going to look at it under three headings. We're looking at the commendation, then the conversion, and finally the confidence. The commendation, the conversion, and the confidence. First we have the commendation, and that's in verses 1 to 3, where David commends the Lord as being worthy of his praise. David commends the Lord as being worthy of his praise. Now, before proceeding, we can note the composer of the psalm. We're told at the very start that this is a psalm of David. It's a psalm that has been composed by a man who lived 900 years before the birth of Christ. And this man was the king over the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah, as well as being described as a man after the Lord's own heart. He is a God-centered man. He is a God-saturated man. He is a man who is passionate about the Lord. And in verses 1 and 2, we can see what David wants to do. We read, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name forever. David wants to give thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. He wants to praise the Lord and profess the Lord. And he wants to do this with the the depths of his innermost being. He wants to engage in a wholehearted worship. He goes on and says that he wants to sing the Lord's praises before the gods. Now that word, the gods, has a range of meanings. It could refer to the whole host of heaven, the, the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, the Lord's throne attendants. Or it could refer to the false deities, the false gods, the false idols of the ancient Near East. Or it could even refer to the the kings of the surrounding nations. The key point is that David sees the Lord as surpassing all these other great powers, these great beings. And the Lord is therefore deserving of David's praise, David's worship expressed in song. 
He then says that he wants to bow toward the Lord's holy temple and give thanks to his name. In speaking about the Lord's holy temple, David is speaking about the tent, the tabernacle, in which the Ark of the Lord's covenant was kept. Later, it would refer to the magnificent building that Solomon would build in Jerusalem. And David wants to bow in the direction of that temple, that place of worship, that place where the Lord's presence was concentrated, and he wants to give thanks to the Lord's name. Then in verses 2 and 3, David moves from speaking about what he wants to do to speaking about why he wants to do this. We read, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name forever for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. David wants to praise the Lord first for his steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is a God of steadfast love. That word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, meaning loyal love, enduring love, a tenacious love that refuses to let go. Dale Ralph Davis illustrates that kind of love using a story about the the preacher William Still. William Still had become minister in Gilcomston in Aberdeen and he was preaching about judgment, preaching about hell on a regular basis, the consequences of turning a deaf ear to the gospel. And on one occasion, his aunt, who had moved in to be his housekeeper, spoke to him and she said to him, Oh, Willie, is there no love in the gospel? Uh, And William still told his aunt that he had to preach what the Lord laid on his heart to preach. And his aunt said to him, well, if it goes on, if you keep preaching like that, soon there will be no one left in the congregation apart from yourself and myself. And William still asked her, will you desert me then? And she replied, never. I committed myself to you and to the Lord's work and I will never leave you. And Dale Ralph Davis says, that is chesed. That is loyal love. That is enduring love. That is the tenacious love that refuses to let go. But the Lord is more than a God of steadfast love, David says. He is also a God of faithfulness. He is a God who remains committed to the promises that he has made. He is the God who can be counted on, the God who can be relied upon. David then goes on to say that the Lord is to be praised Because he has exalted his name and his word above all things. There is nothing like the Lord. There is no one like the Lord. His name, his character and his word that reveals himself. His name and his character, David says, are in a category by themselves. They they are exalted. They are lifted up. And the, the Lord is the one who has exalted his name. The Lord is the one who has exalted his revelation, his word concerning himself. And finally, David says that the Lord is to be praised because he answered David's prayers. Up until this point, David has been speaking in general terms about the Lord's steadfast love, about his faithfulness. But he now looks back at a specific time in his life, a time when he called out to the Lord. And on that occasion, the Lord answered him. And he answered David by increasing the strength of his soul, by making him bold. Note David doesn't say that the Lord changed his situation. Instead, the Lord changed David to handle his situation. So as we consider these verses, friends, we're being reminded 
that the Lord is a God who ought to receive our wholehearted praise. The Lord is a God who ought to receive our wholehearted praise. That is what we see in Psalm 138. David wants to praise the Lord with his whole heart, wants to sing the Lord's praises, wants to bow down before the Lord's temple and give thanks to his name. And David wants to do this because he recognises that the Lord is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He recognises that the Lord is a God who has exalted his name and his word above all other things. And he recognises that the Lord is a God who answered him when he called to him, when he cried out to him, when he prayed and pled to him. And that is an important lesson for ourselves. There is always a danger for us as individuals or as a congregation that we simply bring our requests to the throne of heaven. That we ask God to provide, we ask God to heal and we ask God to forgive. That's all we do. Now, now that, these are all very important. God is glorified in the dependence of his people. Uh, I have a book in the study. It's, I think it's a vital book. And it's a book about encouraging prayer meetings and congregations. And the author says prayer is a mark of dependence on God. And when a congregation isn't praying, it says something about their dependence on God. But God is also glorified in the praises of his people. He is glorified in the thanksgiving of his people. He is glorified in the times when we praise him for his steadfast love and faithfulness, despite our tendency to wander and waver. He is glorified in the times when we praise him for his name and his word, a name and a word that he has exalted above all other things. And he is glorified in the times when we praise him for his answers to our prayers. Yes, the prayers, the, the answers that we wanted, but also the answers that we didn't want. And even the answers that we never expected. And so this evening, friends, I want to ask the question, are we giving this God our wholehearted praise? If someone was to wander into our service this evening or on Saturday or on Sunday, would they be able to say there's a people who are worshipping their God from the heart? I may not worship their God. I may not know very much about their God. But there's a people who are worshipping their God with all their hearts. So there's the commendation. Second, we have the conversion. Look at verses four to six, where David now looks forward to the conversion of the kings of the nations and their participation in the Lord's worship. In verses four and five, we hear David's desire. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. David looks forward to a day when the kings of the earth will give the Lord the recognition that he deserves. He says that all the kings of the earth shall give thanks to the Lord. Now, some translate this as, I don't know what version of the Bible you might be using this evening, but some translate this as, may all the kings of the earth give you thanks, O Lord. And others translate this as, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. 
And then David says that the kings of the earth shall sing of the ways of the Lord. And again, some translate this as, may they sing of the ways of the Lord. And again, others translate this as, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. The key point is that David sees the Lord as being worthy of receiving recognition from the kings of the earth. Not just the king of Israel and Judah, but the kings of the earth should be giving thanks to the Lord. The kings of the earth should be singing the praises of the Lord. And David provides the reason why the kings of the earth will give or ought to give such recognition to the Lord. He says here that hearing the words of the Lord's mouth, the indicatives of what he has done and the imperatives of what he requires should stimulate them to give thanks to him. And the greatness of the Lord's glory, an awareness of his worth, an awareness of his splendour, an awareness of his majesty, ought to bring them to the place of singing about the Lord's ways. That's David's desire. And in verse 6, we move from David's desire to David's declaration. We read, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty. He knows from afar. David starts by speaking about the Lord's regard for the lowly. He he claims that the Lord is high. He is lifted up. He is elevated. He is exalted. But despite being high, David says, he regards the lowly. He notices those who humble themselves before him. He pays attention to those who are happy to, to see the Lord increase and to see themselves decrease. He considers those who boast in his worth and refuse to boast in their own worth. Nobody else might have any regard for such people. But David says the Lord regards them. The Lord regards the lowly. The Lord regards those who simply say, I want the Lord to be made much of. We might put it this way. The Lord makes much of those who make much of him. And then David speaks about the Lord's rejection of the haughty or proud. He claims here that, yes, the Lord knows him, but only from afar, only from a distance. He looks with indifference, bordering on disdain on those who refuse to humble themselves before him. Those who cannot, who will not bring themselves to the point of worshipping him. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been reminded that the Lord is the one who ought to be worshipped by all peoples. The Lord is the one who ought to be worshipped by all peoples. That is what we see in Psalm 138. David has spoken about his own personal ambition and aspiration to give thanks to the Lord. But now he anticipates a day. And if he's not anticipating a day, he is praying for a day when all the kings of the earth will give thanks to the Lord. Now, that is an audacious claim. We might not really grasp David's thinking, the, the ancient Near Eastern thinking at the time. David is saying here that the worship of the Lord isn't to be confined or limited to those living within the borders of Israel and Judah. David is saying here that the Lord is to be worshipped by all the nations and by all their kings. That is how great the Lord is. 
That is how glorious the Lord is. He is a global God. He is not a territorial deity. He is not a tribal deity. That was the thinking at the time. Those living in the ancient Near East thought that gods were restricted to particular places and particular peoples. And David is saying here, the Lord is to be praised by all the kings and all the nations. And that is such an important lesson for ourselves. In 2009, I, I bought John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions. And the book opens with the following statement. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. Don't you love that? The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. I find that to be a game-changer. It means that we don't simply engage in outreach and evangelism because we want people to be saved from hell. It means rather that we engage in outreach and evangelism because we believe that the God whom we worship is worthy of the worship of those whom we're reaching out to, those whom we're evangelizing. We want to see them praising the God of steadfast love. We want to see them praising the God whose name and word is exalted. We want to see them praising the God who answers the prayers, the pleas, the cries, the calls of his people. And we want to see them praising this God in this life and in the life to come. That is what mission is about. That is what outreach is about. That is what evangelism is about. We want to see Sandwick and the surrounding area, Stornway and the surrounding area, Lewis and the surrounding area, Scotland and the surrounding area, magnifying the name of God. Not just using Jesus as a cheap ticket out of hell into heaven when they die. And so this evening, friends, I want to ask the question, do we have a burden? Do we have a hunger for conversions? Do we have a longing to see those in our homes, those in our community, and those who are further afield, engaged in the white, hot worship of God? I want to see my family members saved. I want to see my friends saved. But I want to see them praising God in this life and the life to come. And I'm sure you do as well. Third and finally, we come to the confidence. Look at verses 7 and 8. Here David expresses his confidence in the Lord even in troubled days. 
David's confidence in the Lord, even in troubled days. In verses 7 and 8, we hear David's assurance. We read, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. In verses, David begins with a word of assurance. He, he begins by speaking about the awareness of the environment that he is living in. David doesn't lead a charmed life where there's no tears, no trials, no testings of his faith. And on this occasion, David claims that he is walking in the midst of trouble. That word trouble often refers to enemies. David feels threatened as he finds himself going through a particularly trying, traumatic, troubling season. He's surrounded. He's hemmed in. He barely has room to move, barely has room to breathe. But despite this awareness of the environment that he is living in, David is assured of three things. He is assured, he is confident that the Lord will preserve his life. The Lord's the one who gives life, the one who sustains life. And David is confident that he will preserve his life. He is also assured or confident that the Lord will deliver him from the wrath of his enemies. He will stretch out his hand against those enemies who are assaulting David, attacking David. And as he stretches out his hand against David's enemies, his right hand, his hand of power will deliver David. And finally, David is confident that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for him. The Lord's got a plan for David. He's got a purpose for David. And David believes that the Lord will fulfill that plan. He will fulfill that purpose Since he is the God whose steadfast love endures forever. And armed with that assurance, that threefold assurance, David brings one final appeal to the Lord. Look at verse 8. We read, do not forsake the work of your hands. David speaks to the Lord here about the work of your hands. Sometimes the phrase, the work of your hands, can refer to God's work of creation. On other occasions, it can refer to the Lord's work of deliverance, his work of salvation. But on this occasion, it refers to David, the singer of this psalm, and all those who join their voices in singing with David the psalm of faith. All those who sing this psalm in faith are the work of the Lord's hands. And David appeals to the Lord not to forsake the work of his hands. He's asking the Lord not to drop him. Not to let him go. Not to abandon him. He knows that he can survive being in the midst of trouble if the Lord's with him, if the Lord's got a hold on him. But should the Lord drop him? Should the Lord let him go? Should the Lord abandon him? David's chances of survival are zero. And so he implores the God of steadfast love with these words. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Don't let me go or I don't know where I will go. Now, friends, as we consider this verse, we've been reminded that the Lord is the one in whom we ought to place our trust. The Lord is the one in whom we ought to place our trust. That is what we see in Psalm 138. David finds himself walking a difficult path. He's going through a trying season, a turbulent season, a testing season. But he is confident that the Lord is the one who will preserve his life. 
The Lord is the one who will deliver him from his enemies. The Lord is the one who will fulfill his purposes for him, since the Lord is a God of steadfast love. And that is such an important lesson for us this evening. The God of the Bible is a God who preserves his people, delivers his people, fulfills his purposes for his people, because he is a God of steadfast love. The God of the Bible is a God who perseveres with his people, doesn't drop them, doesn't let them go, doesn't abandon them, because he's a God of steadfast love. And sometimes, as it was in David's case, the remembrance of that steadfast love is the only thing, the only thing that takes a Christian through certain seasons and certain situations. Ian, Miller, Ian Murray illustrates this by telling the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones visiting his friends uh, Paul and Faith Cook. He was preaching in Paul Cook's congregation. Paul Cook was a pastor, but he was, he was going through a real time of depression. He, he couldn't leave the house, and, and it was taking a very heavy toll on his wife, Faith. And Lloyd-Jones went to visit the Cooks, and after spending some time with Paul Cook, he then went to Faith, and he grabbed her hand warmly and simply said to her, Remember the love of God. Remember the love of God. And Faith Cook was to comment later in life, These words, perhaps more than any others, carried me through all the distress of the months that followed. These words, remember the love of God, carried me through all the distress of the months that followed. Sometimes that's all a Christian has to hold on to. The remembrance of the steadfast love of God, the God who envelops, enfolds, embraces his people with his hesed, his loyal love, his enduring love, his tenacious love that refuses to let them go. The God who persists with his people and perseveres with his people and assures them that having begun a work of grace in their lives, he will bring it to completion. The God who has never lost and will never lose any of those whom he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. The God who says to his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love, a, a love that had no beginning and a love that has no end. Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this. If you are not swallowed up by the darkness or swept away by the distress, it will be because in the midst of it all, you have a God and Saviour who says, I have committed myself to you. And I will never leave you. And just to be assured of unfailing love makes all the difference. Just to be assured of unfailing love makes all the difference. And so this evening, friends, when so, so much of our lives might be blighted with thoughts about COVID or thoughts about cost of living or thoughts about conflict in Ukraine or thoughts about so many other things that can disturb or trouble us, 
we can walk into an unknown future, confident in a God, trusting in a God who loves his people, all those who are in Christ. And he loves them with a steadfast love that will endure to the end. That's the confidence of the Christian. We have been loved and we are being loved and we will be loved from eternity past to eternity future enveloped and enfolded in Chesed, steadfast love. Amen.